So uh, thanks for joining me in this somewhat unique setting. We're in an art gallery here in the University of Sydney. We're in the Tin Sheds Gallery, and I've got Sophia sitting next to me in the studio. We would call it in a, in a studio, and I've got Christina zooming in very early morning from... Um, where are you today? I'm in the northeast of Scotland. I'm in Aberdeen. Oh, excellent, excellent. And we're here to talk about all things music and the city, and we will get quite concrete at sometimes, and we'll get quite abstract at a few other points. But I might just get both of you to just say one or two words about who you are and what you do. We might go to you first, mm, Soph. Okay. Um, sure. Uh, I'm Sophia Marlson. I'm a senior lecturer in urbanism at the University of Sydney. I have many interests to do with the urban, but one of the sort of long-time ones in my PhD was on this was around sound and sound as, as something that we collect, as something that moves, as something that we can buy, steal, all these kind of things and co-create. Um, and that's also how um, I guess I'm interested in elements of that with the urban as well, so things like soundscapes and things like that. Excellent. And Christina? Yeah, um, I'm a lecturer in the Department of Music at the University of Aberdeen um, in Scotland. Um, my area of expertise is broadly uh, music and place. So I deal a lot with how music essentially functions in place-based contexts, whether that be the ways in which musicians are able to build and navigate their careers or the structure and function of place-based music industries and scenes. And within that, there's a lot of work that deals with cultural policy, particularly around um, initiatives like the Music Cities concept and those kinds of things, and also more broadly. And what my work is getting into at the moment is music ecosystems and their relationship to chrono-urbanist uh, planning frameworks as well. Excellent. And we might start with you, Christina. You were just telling me uh, offline a few seconds ago about the work you did for your PhD around Perth and sort of music cultures that emerge there and it seems like an interesting collection of government intervention and a mining boom and disposable incomes and high rents all coalesced to really create a very interesting dynamic for music culture. Could you sort of talk us through that project? Yeah, sure. So that project was a 12-year retrospective of the Perth contemporary scene, um, particularly around the indie pop rock. So we're talking about, about bands like Eskimo Joe, Sleepy Jackson, Jebediah, End of Fashion, um, and a whole bunch of other bands that kind of splintered off those bands, toured with those bands, you know, were sharing houses with members of the bands, working in the same recording studios, rehearsal spaces, um, and that kind of thing. And the particular time frame that I was dealing with, which was 1998 to 2009, it coincided with, at various points, particularly towards the end there, this mining boom, um, which had a very interesting impact on the sector, because on the one hand, it meant that we had an influx of people um, from other parts of the country. It was putting significant pressure on the housing market for various reasons. And it meant that rents and things like that were getting really expensive for people actually, you know, who were engaging in this work. And we know this from existing literature that, that low rents are really important for artists and arts workers. Um, but at the same time, it did mean that the people who were working in the mining sector in particular, they had access to these substantive disposable incomes, which was a huge um, 
boon for um, particularly festival promoters with being able to bring in these huge festivals um, to the state because people could afford to spend the money on that. Um, so it did really bring to the fore these interesting tensions between, you know, the the impact of these sorts of external factors like a mining boom on how a scene is able to function, how people are able to build their careers. But then it also meant for the consumers, they actually have the ability to engage. Um, and the festivals themselves were a really interesting element for local musicians to play because it would allow them to play to audiences they otherwise perhaps wouldn't have been able to play, play to. But in the in the early 2000s, there was quite significant investment from the WA state government into um, the arts sector, more broadly, not just music. Um, and a big thing that came out of it for musicians was it was able to offset the costs associated with touring out of the state. I think something it's, it's really interesting living in the UK now and how people, um, I, live, I live in Aberdeen and Glasgow is three hours away from here and apparently that's a really long distance. I always laugh in Australian is what I say to people um, when they start talking about the distances here um, in the UK. So we, 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 we probably should tell people who are not from Australia or Perth just where Perth is and where WA is and why a government subsidy for touring is so important. Yeah, absolutely. So Perth is towards the southwest coast of Western Australia and the distances in Australia are such that we don't have um, substantive rail networks between capital cities. Um, if we do, they're not particularly high speed, um, but also it does take about five hours to fly across country. Um, and the one of the interesting things about the distance with Perth from other major centres in Australia is that Perth's actually closer to most cities in Indonesia than it is capital cities in Australia. And it takes just as long to drive, and this is crude driving time, um, from Perth to Adelaide as it does to go from Adelaide to Melbourne to Sydney up to Brisbane. That's how big um, Australia is and how distanced um, Perth is. So, you know, you're essentially losing an entire day in, in flying and time differences and things like that. So we start to see some significant um, costs incurred, both financially but also time-wise um, for musicians as well. Mm. What sort of government incentives and government programs are there to support like another term that's used is music ecosystems. So what, what sort of government support is there for these music in ecosystems? Um, look, the funding in Western Australia has just gone through a, quite a substantive overhaul. Um, I can't really speak to the environment at the moment because I'm not across um, across those programs and what they look like at the moment. Um, but typically what they will involve is there will be, you know, touring grants and it's really about supporting touring out of the state, also internationally. So back in the day, a big, a big one that um, musicians could get access to was if they were accepted to perform at South by Southwest, they could essentially immediately get about a $10,000 grant um, to help subsidise the costs for getting to Austin. Um, so there's those kinds of grants as well that were really, really instrumental in supporting artists, being able to make those connections um, internationally. And a lot of it also has to do with essentially allowing musicians or music practitioners, you know, industry practitioners, those sorts of people to engage with, you know, career development and learning opportunities that maybe aren't necessarily available to them um, within the state. And there's also been a big shift in the last couple of years. And I was um, involved in some 
research that helped inform this, but really bringing to the fore the importance of mentor mentorship in the music industry and helping to support and facilitate mentorship-based learning um, and networking opportunities um, as well. Mm. So I guess we're getting into the kind of the, the music infrastructure that you need to make these uh, professions grow. What else do we need in cities to allow artists, and, and not just artists, actually, there's a whole ecosystem of businesses that uh, exist around musicians as well? Uh, yeah, look, live music venues, of course, you know, those sorts of spaces that can actually help um, give people the opportunity to perform. Those are really, really important. And I can't understate that importance because it's not just about being able to perform live. I mean, live music touring is such a significant part of, um, you know, the financial side of having a career as a musician. That's how you generally make your money. And we saw a huge impact of that when everything shuttered um, during the pandemic. But venues also play another role for musicians as well. It's where they network, it's where they meet their peers, it's where they're able to engage with industry um, as well and it's where they connect with audiences and venues um, based in particular locations are able to, um, you know, really build a strong community around them um, as well. And the other thing, of course, is access, you know, to, to working spaces as well and, and being able to um, access those spaces cheaply um, and easily as well. Mm. I guess these are some of the, what we might call shadow infrastructures of the various music industries. You can't play live unless you have a rehearsal space, for example. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, if we don't have venues, people don't have places to go and play. Um, you know, audiences don't have necessarily the opportunity to go and see um, bands perform live and of course you know one of the really great things that actually came out of the pandemic was that shift to online and certainly how it supported you know people who perhaps are living with a disability or have other issues around being able to feel safe and comfortable in venues for various reasons um, and and yeah so you know access to being able to have those sites of creativity as you'd sort of almost call them um, of being able to engage with one another whether it be your peers whether it be other industry practitioners whether it be your audiences you know they're really really important mm. i've talked to a couple of other people about this and they talk about the way the music industry has changed from making albums and the albums being very important to uh, they call it a touring and merch business so they basically don't make any well if you're a very high performing artist you might make money off record sales but a lot of you know emerging bands are actually making their money off touring and and merchandise so i guess that must have been huge impact on them during covid yeah, well, that's traditionally how, you know, musicians made their money. Record labels would make their money off album sales and, uh, you know, musicians would make their money from touring and the sale of merch. Where it's changed, and I would also say it's really interesting because we often discuss, you know, how the music industry is losing money. The music industry isn't losing money. It's actually made up for the losses and then some. The issue that we've got is the record labels lose money. And that's who will start to really push back. Um, but when we get into it, what's essentially happened about a decade or so ago, they started to, the record labels, this is, started to um, give these what are called 360 recording deals, which is basically they start to take a chunk of cash out of everything um, that an artist might be involved in. And so things like ticket sales, which were traditionally 
wholly for the artists. Um, the labels, as I say, would make their money off the albums and the increase in album sales owing to an increase in, you know, radio airplay and, and things like that. Um, they started to take a cut of that. They started to want to take a cut of the merch. Um, and that's how it sort of redistributed the way in which the money actually circulates. And then we, of course, have the aspect of um, gross underpayments through streaming as well, which does not help any part of the situation at all, particularly when we look at how little will go to the artists in the end. I do want to go to Sophia in a second, talk about the digitisation of music. But before we go there, maybe a good segue is the Spotification, the Spotify kind of logic to the whole music industry. How is that affecting music business? Hmm. That's a really good question because that does actually somewhat sit outside my area of expertise um, in many ways. I think one of the things it does reveal in a positive way is just the importance of place-based music. You know, one of the things that often comes up in digitization discussions um, is how you know it's quote unquote leveled the playing field. Everyone can get their music out there now, but now everyone can get their music out there. So how do you actually get ahead of that? Um, but that's where you know things like actually supporting the infrastructure in cities locally, um, supporting these music ecosystems, considering the way in which, you know, music's able to function in non-music contexts. So part of an ecosystem would be looking at how you can put, you know, musicians in hospitals as a form of music therapy or, um, you know, even just having performances. I know of... Um, you know, initiatives back home um, up in Queensland, for example, which is the Stairwells Project, which is musicians going into hospitals, playing in somewhat public spaces um, and things like that. It's it's considering the role of music in education. It's how do you support that? You know, one of the things that came out of the research that we did with the Making Music Work Project a few years ago um, out of Griffith and with partnerships with various government agencies and not-for-profit organisations is that, you know, musicians have very agile um, skills sets and are able to be very adaptive. Um, there's certainly pressures that are put on them of having to be so adaptive, particularly if we look at it through the lens of a portfolio music career. But one of the things that really came out of that research was that, you know, music's able to function in so many different spaces in so many different ways. Musicians have so many transferable skills and music is just so important, you know, to our day-to-day -day lives. Excellent. Uh, so if we'll go to you next, and we'll probably be shifting gears a little bit. So mm -hmm. here we're talking about the production of music and uh, musicians and music culture. But in your book, The Social Life of Sound, you were interested in following music, really, mm. following music through various changes, digitization. Yeah. Tell us about that book. Yeah, okay, interesting, I guess, yeah. Um, well, I hope it's interesting. <laughs> it may not be. Um, yeah, so in The Social Life of Sound, I sort of took this very, um, I guess the approach stems actually more from classic anthropological material culture studies where, you know, you can consider objects themselves, particularly in commodity cycles, having uh, biographies and social lives and very much attributed to their cycles in and out of value. Um, and so I was really interested in understanding, because at the time I did my research too, there was this, it was just on the cusp of digitalization. So there was this, my previous research had been around DJs and the value of vinyl and, rec you know, valuable vinyls just for playing. I didn't say vinyls, I said vinyl. <laughs> I just want to clarify, it came out with a bit of S on the end. I'm like, no, it's a vinyl. Um, um, in both collecting and then playing. And... 
there was a discussion at the time, Sobrato had just sort of started making an appearance and people were like, oh, that's not real DJing, things like that. A few years later when I did my thesis, everyone was just DJing digitally, basically. Um, so basically that's the, the shift from basically records, vinyl mm. records to CDs and, and other uh, digital forms yeah, of Yeah, MP3s, anything. Right. And so, so ma manipulate from a physical manipulation mm. to a digital manipulation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and you know, the upsides of that were people were like, well, I don't have to drag around my big record bags anymore. Like it was a lot easier actually, mm. equipment wise and things. Although many of them still had their physical copies um, you know, because that still played an important yeah. part. But I was quite interested in what this digitalization did to materiality, right? So, like, well, what does that mean? Because the actual record had been such a core part of that culture. Um, and looking into that, it also meant suddenly, you know, we've always had sampling and things, but the, I guess, the scale at which it could be done, the rate at which it could be done was suddenly amplified. And so we start getting, you know... Um, that wave of, I guess, um, acts like Girl Talk and all these other ones who are starting to, to bring, um, I guess it's like sampling on sort of and mix up and mash ups and all of those kind of things starting to happen. And we know that happened previously in older technologies. It's just that I guess the shift was it was a lot um, yeah, broader and faster and wider and also more accessible. Um, you know, I look at my stepson now who's just turned 14 and his skills for editing and combining and things are just you know incredibly and just an almost intuitive like because he's I don't know where he got it from but anyway he's he's very good and uh, like I think that's quite normal now um so there was that change in the medium and the way that we consume music and so I was interested to see then what happens to sounds and part of that which is tied up still with the I guess the materiality of the record and the value of vinyl is that then uh, records had a resurgence um, and we see now a lot of small presses, um, there are a lot of uh, reissue labels, they all started having uh, growth around that time because suddenly uh, having a physical copy became important again. It wasn't just something that was annoying. People were like, I'm a collector, look at my things, or my favourite bands released a record, I've got it there. I don't just have... They might also have the digital copy, but also have uh, a physical copy. And so we see this value cycle starting to emerge um, based on the materiality. And with this ability to, I guess, uh, you know easier sampling, ability to find out more about certain records and artists. Um, there was also, I guess, the rebirth, and this isn't actually just through the digitalization of but earlier sampling as well, of um, artists that have been forgotten, artists that had all this great potential and never made it, um, and somebody finding, you know, in their digging, this cool record with a cool track, and then suddenly, a whole artist's career, which might not have even taken off in the first place, suddenly gaining traction, like a couple decades later, because suddenly somebody sampled that sound, they found the record and like, this is amazing, and then everybody wants to have a look at that sound, and that's where the reissues come in as well. So something that might have been very of very limited value a couple decades ago, suddenly um, reinvigorated and being highly sought after. Mm. What I find very interesting in there is 
the digitization and this, it kind of reminds me of the other work you do, which is on tech mm-hmm. and, you know, the tech industry and the internet mm-hmm. and this assumption that the, the internet is this other space, this mm-hmm. other space out there when really the internet is just wholly part of our lives. And mm-hmm. in many ways, the, I wonder if there was a concern with the, the digitization that there was, that we were moving away from this physical product. Mm-hmm. Um, when really, DJ, DJs are doing the same thing in physical space. They're still making music. Yeah. And, and then there was this weird quirk in there where it actually kind of revalidated the physical yeah, product as well. Definitely. I mean, I think that's exactly like one of the ironies of it, right? There's this whole panic that, you know, oh, everything's becoming digitised, there's lacking... And that's why I was so fascinated, actually, in the materiality aspect, because my background was, like, in material cultures things and I like holding objects and things like that. And so, so material cultures work for people who don't know what that is. Oh. It's just looking at objects mm. as, a, as, a, as a thing Field. to research yeah. and to, to help you study, yeah. yeah, and help you understand and make sense of the world. Yeah, and seeing how people use them and make their days and daily lives and lives with material objects. And so yeah, I think that was the really interesting part. There was this big sort of, you know, and as you say, it's the same for where we, you know, when cities became smart cities and became digitalised, this whole idea that, you know, where is it? Is it, where is the smart city or where is the internet? And the fact is that it's all of these infrastructural arrangements that are underground, all around us, they're, they're material, we're just often invisible, right? So, um, because we don't look for it, but if we looked for our server farms or our cords under the, you know, cords, cables under the surfaces, you know, it's all there. And it's, and it, you know, the whole, I guess there's a whole panic around too, around social media and going, well, there's, you know, it's devaluing face-to-face interaction or in-person interaction and these relationships haven't gone away. People talk about them being sometimes more important or equally as important, you know. So this idea that somehow everything's substantially different because of it, I think, is a little overplayed. And I think the music actually is a really good example of how it plays out. Like, it's one of the early precursors, actually, to to all these other arenas in which we see this play out. Um, and, you know, I mean, music as itself, as a, as a material culture thing itself, is fascinating because, you know, we've gone vinyl dies, we get tapes and CDs. When digital music comes along, digitalization, yeah, MP3s, we don't we're not going back to CDs, we're not going back to tapes, it's back to records. So it's something interesting there around that as well. Um, I don't know what it is. Excellent. Christina, I might go back to you and I it's it seems, you know, at some levels there's not a lot that's similar about this, but on another level I think there's something that is quite similar, and that's around this idea of performance and being in place and physical objects being in physical places and I think you call this like place-based music industries. Why are they so important to us and why do we actually gravitate, seem to gravitate back to them. We, we want to go and see an artist. It's not, it's not enough just to listen on Spotify. We want to go and see the artist perform this music in whatever way they perform it. 
Mm. Well, I think at the core that there's two things. I mean, music is a, is an experiential good, right? It's something that we experience, whether it be in our headphones in private or we're at, you know we're at an event. But there's a lot of community building and making that can happen within venues. You know, the way that people meet other people. You know, for whatever reason. Um, and certainly, if we look at um, music venues as you know within the concept of what we call third places. So first places being home, second places being work. And third place as being all those um, sites in which you're able to build community. They really do play a, a very strong community building function. And that community building might be primarily based on those music scenes. Um, certainly in you know research that I've done, particularly in Perth, you know, there are certain venues that musicians wanted to play. And there are certain venues that you would go to, you know, to see these kinds of artists perform. It did mean that if you said that you sold out a particular venue on a Saturday night, it was kind of given um but the fact that you were able to get you know a spot to play in that venue we you know was a big deal it was considered a certain career highlight and typically those venues would be ones where you know musicians may have seen particular artists when they were first starting out it kind of becomes you know that's the place i want to play that's the stage i want to be on um, and so you know and that doesn't go away that doesn't change and i think in some ways it's probably even been more heightened i think something that has a weird tension at the moment is, you know, getting back into physical spaces, getting back into crowds, um, you know, and, and becoming comfortable again, you know, in those in those spaces. But there is still a real appetite, you know, for live music and for, and for touring. And certainly for musicians and from the industry side of it, there's that money making. But I think from a consumer's point of view, it's also about reconnecting with community, reconnecting with people, you know, in physical spaces. What? Oh, I was just going to add to that too. I think it's also, there's an element, and you see that I think also with the whole sort of emphasis put on physical copies of music is around your sort of, you know, I'm going to riff on the classic subcultural, cultural capital stuff here of being able to say, I have that record, I've been, I saw that performance, you know, it's all in that building, I guess also the fan and community and fan culture, things like that are really important to physically do as well. Mm. And I just, so yeah, and just riffing back off that, I just wonder what is it about these local venues that makes them popular? Is it, I assume, I don't know them and I really want to hear what the what, what these venues are. I assume it's not just size, I assume it's there's some sort of cultural capital in the mm. venue itself, you know, other people have put, so what what are these venues and why are they the venues to play at I think that's a fascinating place-based question yeah what it, what I have typically found when you know when I've spoken to venue operators who run particular sites and particularly ones that are kind of considered that upper echelon of these are the ones you want to play you know they've been doing it for a long time you know, establishing a venue. I mean, you can look at it in terms of there's the regulatory issues around getting your licensing, there's the planning side of it, for the town planning, but also, you know, if you're running a venue, you need a certain number of car parks. There's all those sorts of things that go into it from the actual building of the infrastructure and getting the business um, and the space licensed. But there's also the reputational capital and that cultural capital that starts to be established. And that takes time. Um, you know, it might be that there's a new, um, a new small venue that might open and people are really excited to see that venue and things like that. But also, you know, that venue might turn over owners a few times, you know, in the first few years of its life, just because of that's what can sometimes happen in that space. But also when you look at venues that have been operating, you know, for 10, 20, 30 years, 
there's a history there and there's a very strong history there um, and it's about respecting that history but it also provides them with that sort of weight of that cultural capital to be that's the venue to play that's a really great stage they've got really great sound they've invested well into the space we know we're always going to see an audience you know the vibe of the place you know might just be a really nice chill vibe you know that it's going to be a, a you know a venue that you want to go into because you know you're going to have a good time whether you're the punter or you, you know you're a performer or you're both on that night you know things like that and that takes time and one of the things that's threatening that is sort of the urban regeneration and things like that we're seeing these mining booms we're seeing the way in which our cities are changing in terms of trying to you know increase housing density and things like that and that has a direct impact on the ability for those sorts of spaces to keep functioning because they'll get pushed out more and more or owners change and they want to change you know the core function um, of the venue because there's only so far that heritage planning and things like that can actually um, go in terms of protecting venues in those spaces. Yeah, I've talked to quite a few people about what we might call the gentrification of the creative industries. So recording studios, dance studios, uh, venues themselves. In Sydney, we have the lockout laws that really affected things. COVID, of course, affected things. What else is a threat to music ecosystems or creative, eco creative industry ecosystems? I think you've really hit the nail on the head in terms of the gentrification. You know, it's um, it's people moving into city, you know, into particular neighbourhoods and not understanding, um, you know, the culture and the history of those spaces. And it's a bit of nimbyism that will start to happen. Um, you know, I certainly saw that when I was still living in Brisbane. You know, there was a lot of redevelopment going on. There was a lot of um, people of generations moving in who perhaps, you know, weren't necessarily going to be open to the fact that you know there were certain venues around and and things like that i mean there are certainly things that can be put in place in terms of i cannot remember the exact term but i know there is some aspect of planning where you can put sort of some kind of element into that where basically if you're going to build you know a set of apartments next door to a venue you basically know that that venue it's part of the rights of first occupancy and those kinds of things but there is a certain thing within planning that i know you can take it you know to the next step but one of the things about that when we get into those rights of first occupancy arguments is that it takes a lot for that to go to court there's a lot of steps involved for that to go to court so it really becomes around building those relationships within the neighborhood around having people know that you're moving into an area with an established venue please you know respect that culture but also you know venues need to respect that they might be in a neighborhood you might be in a neighborhood where you know having punters come out in the middle of the night and they're being noisy that's just not appropriate regardless you know so there is that sort of tension between who's who's sort of responsible but I think it's also about respecting and valuing music. And I don't know if we respect and value music in Australia in the same way that I see um, in parts of Europe and things like that. There's there's a really interesting tension there around how we view culture and creativity in Australia um, and, and how that bears out and plays out, you know, um, for how, you know, how, how cultural we, and creative industries. How do we view it? I don't think we take it seriously in terms of it being a cultural good and being an extension of our identity. And, and you know, 
really I think that also comes down to, you know, there's a lot of cultural cringe in Australia. There's a real lack of, um, you know, acknowledgement that what we do as creative and cultural practitioners has value, has merit. We often look, certainly this was something that came up in Perth, was that we would certainly look to other cities and other countries for validation. So as a Perth musician, you'd made it if you made a dent in the cities of Sydney and Melbourne. Um, you know, if you're in Sydney and Melbourne, it's about, you know, having that impact um, globally and things like that. We often need that validation um, coming externally in order for us to feel like we've actually achieved something, you know, um, and that, that those attitudes take time to shift as well. So are you actually interviewed musicians for your PhD? Was I, do I remember correctly that you interviewed Courtier? No. Yes. You did? Yes. Yeah. Wally, as Wally. I like to yep. call him. No. And I, and um. I, and I, th I think I read somewhere that he recorded, some, somebody I used to know, mm. he recorded that in his bedroom and he got Kimbra to record her bit and she recorded it also in a house somewhere mm. which is I've always find absolutely fascinating that they home recorded that album but anyway yeah, tell, so inter oh, yeah. tell us to, which is another kind of interesting urban mm. sort of dimension with you know thinking about the digitization of well and you know the classic bedroom DJ yeah you know yeah, yeah. that's like the whole thing there is like yeah um yeah. anyway what was it like um talking to musicians about um, this stuff Really interesting. Like, um, I mean, that one was facilitated by my supervisor at the time, Kurt Iveson, whose brother's a drummer and worked. Wally Debacco's a drummer too. Yeah, right? yeah, 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 yeah. But uh, Kurt's brother, Mike, was his drummer. So I oh, managed right, okay. to get I thought I'd finished my field work. And then Kurt's like, no, we can do one more. <laughs> um, so, no, really interesting because, I mean, one of the things that I always love about... Um, interviewing people is that you know they tell you things that you don't expect and some of it reconfirms what you want but um or what you know I should say um and then others you know pop up so when I was talking about sampling and whether that was a negative thing in terms of the costs that it would have a lot of you know unexpectedly some of them were like actually no I think it pushes you to be better because you have to be more creative and things around that there are a lot of I guess hacks in that way of how you can sort of subvert or work within certain um, legal guidelines um, and just the range of genres and music and you know you people might be considered a, a certain a DJ or a musician was with, within one genre, but their actual, I guess, tastes and knowledges are extensive across multiple genres. The other interesting people that I talked to actually were record labels, so the reissue labels um, themselves, smaller ones, and what sort of drove that. That was always sort of a personal passion around music um, and sort of a, a desire to share bands that they thought weren't particularly well recognised with a broader audience. And then on the other whole other end of the scale there was the Smithsonian Folkways. Um, and that was just insane. I mean, the, the whole mission of, of Folkways was to record, keep a recording of almost every sound in the world. That's its mythological history. And so they have all these, you know, random and extensive catalogue of sounds and recordings. 
And they were talking about actually one of the things that brought them up to, I guess, which was really interesting, that brought them, I guess, into the idea of moving into reissues was the interest that came from, what was the Coen Brothers film, um, Oh Brother, Where Out Thou? And the Woody Guthrie and the blues, the great bluegrass, all of that uh, kind of resurgence. And so they were like, hold on, we've got so much Woody Guthrie in our archives. What happens if we do an album, a compilation? And it became a bestseller. And so from then on, they actually became a bit more attuned to the market and seeing what they could do. But taking a very curatorial approach where they sort of treated their compilations. And if you've ever seen a sort of Smithsonian Folkways compilation, it comes with extensive liner notes, things like that. Um, And actually, a lot of the smaller reissue labels did that too. Sort of giving this context was really important. But I would say in terms of both in the reissue labels and the musicians that I talk to, like just referring again back to the importance of community. Um, people having spaces to go and DJ at a local night. There was, you know, a lot of my work was in Brisbane and there were a key, few key venues in West End that were locally run bars and really, you know, would let people come in and have spots. Having a few key figures who'd been in the industry for a very long time to teach people and to take them record digging and teach them about different genres of music. Um, None of it was done in isolation. So they might be at home sort of trying, in their bedroom, trying, you know, figuring out things, but the importance of that um, community infrastructure around it was really important. Awesome. Well, I think we've come to the end of our chat. So uh, thanks so much for coming into the studio in one form or another and having a chat today. Thanks, Dallas. Thank you.